Hello, and welcome to this episode of The Jewish Views, with me, Diana Toman. Me, Clive Roslin. And me, Tony Honigberg. Coming up this week, we have Rachel Fink, who's the head teacher at the Jewish Free School and is going to tell us a little bit more following the death of former headmistress Joe Wagerman. We're going to talk to Jack Hirsch about his amazing father, Dave, who escaped from the Nazis not once, but twice. And he has written a book about this extraordinary event. Professor David Newman is going to tell us about David Hillman's stained glass windows. And last of all, we're talking to Beryl Schisler and Rachel Kriegor about Beryl finally having her bat mitzvah at the enormously grand old age of 92. But before all that, let's get a roundup of the main Jewish news stories from the past week with Vivian Krieger. And we begin with the public disagreement between Jonathan Goldstein, chair of the Jewish Leadership Council, and Danny Rich, one of the country's most senior rabbis. Rabbi Rich warned that the Jewish community needed to find a way of working with the Labour Party. Mr Goldstein said that holding the community accountable for the current deadlock could become a form of victim-blaming. He said a set of reasonable steps had been suggested to reduce levels of anti-Semitism in the party. Not one had been delivered. Rabbi Rich said Jonathan Goldstein was a principled leader, but that it was a great tragedy that the Jewish community and the Labour Party aren't talking to each other. In other news, four Jewish secondary schools have been placed in the UK's top 20 for the government's Progress League tables, which measures how far pupils' achievements outperform expectations. The four are Menorah High School, Yesode Hatorah and Yavna College in London, plus Beis Yaakov in Manchester. Roman Abramovich has made a generous donation to the Imperial War Museum's new Holocaust galleries in London. The Russian Jewish billionaire's funds will help the museum complete the next phase of its £30 million educational project about the Second World War. This comes after Chelsea Football Club, which Mr Abramovich owns, launched a campaign this year to stamp out anti-Semitism in the sport. And finally, a 94-year-old British-Israeli man has become the oldest Israeli to skydive and says he wants to do it again when he reaches 100. Walter Bingham, who was born in the Weimar Republic in 1924, fell from the skies over northern Israel from a single-engine Cessna in a tandem jump with his instructor. Thank you, Viv. Well, first on the Jewish Views this week, Jack Mendel joins us to review your copy of the Jewish News for this week. Now, let's look at the front page, and the headline is something about Rabbi Danny Rich and Jonathan Goldstein. Yes, Danny Rich, the CEO and Senior Rabbi of Liberal Judaism, and Jonathan Goldstein, the Chair of the Jewish Leadership Council. There's been a rather rare and public spat this week, after Danny Rich attended an event last week involving Shadow Chancellor John McDonnell and a Labour hopeful called Jenny Manson, who wants to stand in Barnet. And he, he came out of this event and reflecting on the row that has engulfed the Labour Party and the Jewish community over the last few years, he told the community that it's in danger of being cut off and he, and he wants the community to continue to engage with the Labour Party. And in a response, Jonathan Goldstein, who famously attended the Enough is Enough rally earlier this year, and he stood in front of thousands of people and 
told Jeremy Corbyn that the community was not going to stand for anti-Semitism anymore. Jonathan Goldstein responded to Rabbi Rich by essentially saying that he was victim-blaming the Jewish community and that it's not the Jewish community that has to engage with Labour, but the other way around. He says that the, the community doesn't want this fight against anti-Semitism. It's been forced into it. And he, he criticises Rich in, in, fairly, in fairly harsh terms, it, it must be said. And I understand that every year we have a giant menorah in Trafalgar Square, but this year that's not going to happen. What's going on there? Yes, this is a, a rolling controversy that has gone on for the last three years. There's a, a woman called Yehudis Goldsobel, and a number of years ago she was sexually abused. And her abuser designed the menorah, which sits in Trafalgar Square every year at Hanukkah in the Square. And there has been a long-running campaign now, I think for about three years, to try and get this removed and try and get a different menorah. And this week it has been announced that the abuser, whose name is Menachem Mendel-Levy, his menorah that he designed will not stand at Trafalgar Square, where thousands gather every year to celebrate. Jewish festival. It's a very public festival. The mayor of London usually speaks. People from all over the world come and perform. So it, 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 was, it was a real kind of blemish on the community every year. Why is this menorah being displayed at you know, one of the community's most proud events? Are they having another menorah then? Have they replaced it with something? Yes. So, so this year it will be replaced by a temporary menorah. And one would assume that by the time of uh, the 2019 Hanukkah in the square, there will be a more permanent fixture. But, but this, this really does cap off quite an ugly row within the Jewish community. Gold Sobel was shunned by some in the Orthodox community for speaking out against uh, sexual abuse. And, I mean, it's taken years of meetings with uh, community organisations to, to get this resolved. You'd think in modern Britain when uh, somebody who has been abused like this and doesn't get the support that she necessarily mm. needs, there would be a bit more of, of an outcry. She, she said she's had plenty of support, but she's also criticised some in the Jewish community for passing the buck on the issue and, and just not resolving it. Yeah, we also really don't need this in the Jewish community with everything else that's going on around us. No, very much so. I understand that schools are featuring in this week's edition as well. Yes, uh, this week four Jewish secondary schools were announced as being in the government's Progress 8 League, which measures how far pupils' achievements have outperformed expectations. And of these four schools, three of them are girls-only schools, which is significant, and one of them is a mixed school. But in, in a time when a lot of Orthodox schools especially are coming under criticism for losing their Ofsted ratings and things like that, this is some positive news that they are rising up the tables to, in terms of attainment. And will Page's awards come into this as well for next year? Yes, I'm glad you mentioned that. The, the deadline for nominations for the Jewish Schools Award held jointly by Jewish News and the Partnership for Jewish Schools, the deadline is the 31st of October. So you have just under a week to put forward exceptional educators that you think deserve recognition. And another story, we've had more UK parliamentary visits to Israel stroke Palestine than anywhere in the last two years. This is very interesting. Yes, a report came out earlier this week which stated that out of 810 visits abroad by 340 MPs, 102 of those were to Israel and Palestine. 
And out of that, the majority are from Conservative MPs, £1.2 million worth in all from the Tories and £2 million overall. And this just really shows the focus for UK politics on Middle East politics and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And of all the conflicts in the world, this, this, this gets the most out of anywhere. It, it does make you think, do we have our priorities sorted out? Mm. You wonder, don't you? Absolutely. And that's where we'll have to leave it for this week. But thank you, Jack Mendel, the online editor of the Jewish News. And don't forget, you can pick up your copy of the Jewish News every Thursday across London or read the e-version at jewishnews.co.uk. You're listening to the Jewish Views in association with the Jewish News. Now, last week, we learnt of the death of former headmistress of JFS, Joe Wagerman. She was the first female president of the Board of Deputies and was awarded an OBE in the early 1990s. Now we can speak to the head teacher, Rachel Fink, who is head of the Jewish Free School, to find out more about the life and the work of Joe Wageman. Tell me a bit about her, Rachel, please. My memory and experience of Joe Wageman is when I was a student myself at JFS in the 1980s. When I joined the school, she was deputy head, a position that she had held for some time, and she was a very beloved history teacher as well. Jo had a fantastic reputation, and nobody ever, you know, today for me to say Jo is quite difficult. We always said Mrs. Wageman, and she was always Mrs. Wageman. It's only in recent years I felt slightly comfortable to call her by her first name, because she had a very strong reputation as a formidable disciplinarian with a very kind side. Nobody messed with Jo Wagerman. She had a very high standards and expectation of everybody because she wanted everybody to succeed and she understood that the key to success in life was through education. Um, Up to the point of her taking over, I mean the school's always been a reasonably successful school but I, I believe that she really did push it to the top, didn't she? There is no question that whilst JFS had always been a good school, something changed with her appointment as head teacher. I was only privileged to be in the school as a sixth former, so until that time, the previous head Leslie Gatov was in charge. But it was very clear from the outset that there were things that were going to be transformed very quickly. I think it's documented elsewhere that one of the main focuses initially was to uh, transform the Jewish Studies Department, which she did with great success. And it continues to be a department of high standards with qualified professionals that she put in place from the start of her tenure. In addition, the focus on developing high standards of behaviour and expectation that JFS would be a school of choice rather than of that's what there was, really was something that changed under Joe Wagerman. And for example, suddenly there were hundreds of families coming to prospective parents' evening, the news out there of what was going on at JFS that had been really good and now was becoming excellent was shared widely. And that was really down to her communication and PR about the school, a place that she loved, a place that she worked really hard to transform and make everybody realise that you could leave a comprehensive school with a fabulous, fabulous education. How would you say that she influenced your career? 
Oh, that's an interesting question. I think that one doesn't realise until later on when you reflect about who's impacted on your career when you're in a certain place. I think I first really recognised the impact that Joe had had on my career when I was asked at an interview for a programme I was going to be participating in, who was my female role model. And I immediately thought not only of Joe, but of a couple of other people, besides my own mother, of course, who had influenced me. And they were all teachers at JFS, but she was the number one on that list. And I understood that it was something about her personality and the fact that Everybody's used the phrase trailblazer in the last week, but it is really true. I have written about the day that the announcement was made regarding her becoming the head teacher of JFS. And it is absolutely true to say that there were big questions that not about her ability, but the fact that she was a woman. She broke a glass ceiling in the Jewish community that hadn't really been broken before. And that opened our eyes to something different. I mean, she was the superior candidate she understood the school she knew where it needed to go and it has certainly strengthened my approach to education knowing that these things can be done and if you know what's right you can move forward and I think it was that moment some 10 or 11 years ago where I realized how much she'd influenced me and that you know you could turn being a teacher I a job as a teacher into really a career as an educator are there any other people that you think uh, that you know of, uh, maybe of a similar age to yourself, that were influenced by her? I would say that many of my peers who I'm in contact with at JFS, not necessarily through the careers that they've led, would look back and say that she had a dramatic influence on their understanding of who they were and what they did just by being head of the school. I know that last week on the passing of her death, that same evening, a group of friends had planned to get together for a sort of little reunion of JFS in Israel. And they said they couldn't believe the timing and they sort of raised a glass to her because they knew how much she had influenced them. I know that I have had contact from many people saying, yeah, she she really influenced me. I wasn't sure quite how, but reflecting I can see that she taught me what it meant to be able to go out into the world, to be proud of my Jewish identity, not need to hide it, and to be really certain and confident in what it was I wanted to do in life. She really led by example. And I think this strong tradition of leadership at JFS is one that was really embedded and developed right from her tenure here. And finally, how will she be remembered at JFS? So we're having lots of conversations. First of all, she will be remembered with enormous fondness and warmth, and we hope that we will be able to do a variety of things in her memory. At the moment, quite what they are, I think it's early days. We have opened an opportunity for former staff, students, parents, anyone who is connected with JFS to write messages and memories, which we hope we will create a book of remembrance, one which obviously the school will keep and some that we'll be able to share with her family because we know there are many people out there who didn't have the opportunity to go to the Shiva, pay respects in person, but have many, many memories to share. I think it's those small stories, the unsung stories, the things you don't hear about that really reflect how fantastic she was. I know that... 
the catering manager here at JFS started her job under Joe's tenure. She was in Camden. And when I shared with the staff that she'd passed away, I didn't realize there very few staff here who still work, are here from working at Camden, certainly under Joe's time. And she wrote back and she said she has such fond memories. And the, the thing that she said that Joe cared about every single member of staff. There was no hierarchy. It didn't matter what your job was in the school. She recognized that everybody was equally important. And she knew that from the way that she had supported her as a catering manager and the other staff who worked in the kitchens. They weren't considered to be sort of downstairs staff, if you like. Everybody was of equal importance and mattered. And that is the legacy that she leaves, that when you work in a big organization, Every single person matters. Everybody is part of that experience and that family. So we will certainly, moving forward, do a variety of things to remember her, to commemorate her, and to ensure that her legacy lives on at JFS beyond the portrait that is hanging off her in the main hall. Rachel Fink, head teacher at JFS, thank you for taking time out to talk to us today. If you would like to get in contact about any of the stories you've heard on this show, then we'd love to hear your Jewish views. Email studio at jewishviews.co.uk. On Facebook, go to facebook.com forward slash the Jewish Views. On Twitter, we're at Jewish Views UK. Or you can go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. UK. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Now, most of us know somebody who has been touched by the Holocaust in one way or another, and our next guest certainly does. Dave Hirsch defied the odds by escaping from the Nazis on more than one occasion. It's a remarkable story that has now been put into words by his son Jack in the form of Death March Escape. And we can now speak to Jack Hirsch, who joins us on the line from America. Jack, it's an amazing story. And you, didn't, you knew, of course, that your father had been through dreadful times. You didn't know the whole thing, did you? No, I really didn't. My father loved telling the story on Passover. You know, Passover is a story of the Jews leaving Egypt in the dead of night. And my father, it was, you know, it was an escape story. And my father had this dual escape story of having escaped twice from concentration camp. And he was a very entertaining and engaging man. He died 15 years ago, but he, he loved to tell stories and he really loved to tell the story of his escape. And he made it entertaining. And it was not until I discovered that he had a little bit of notoriety in the concentration camp because they had his photo and they had his story of the second escape, not the first escape. And I suddenly discovered that he he was known to them and that his escape was not just some entertaining story that I knew about, but was in fact really a a death-defying and, and scary thing. And the more I dug into it, the more interested I became in it, the more I felt I needed to tell the world what he had done. And we, already, we got to hear. It's an amazing story because he was only 18, wasn't he, when it all started? Yes, he was, he was a Hungarian Jew, actually from Transylvania. Hungarian Jews were deported right around Passover 1944. And, and Passover 1944, he was 18 years old. And it was then that he was forced to join the Death March. Actually, the Death March was about a year later. He was transported, like most Jews in Hungary, was transported first to Auschwitz, or Birkenau, more specifically, a subcamp of Auschwitz. And about three days later, he was sent on to Mudhausen, which is in Western Austria, and is 
a camp designed to work you to death. I mean, all the camps were designed to feed you next to nothing and work you very hard and presume you would die. But this camp was actually not designed for Jews, but was designed for criminals and communists and prisoners of war who were incorrigible and and they were running out of people to kill. And so they started sending Jews there. My father went there in June of 44. The death marches where he escaped were in April of 45 as the Russians and the Americans were getting closer to, to Munhausen. Now, in the, in the book, you, you say that your father was more dead than alive when he escaped that first time. How on earth did he manage to do it? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, so he's a man just under six feet tall, I guess 180 centimeters, give or take, 150, 160 pounds. He weighed less than 80 pounds Ooh. by April 1945. I mean, he was with the photos that you see, the stick figure, stick, skeletal, skeletal figures. And in this first death march, when he escaped the first time, he essentially was was on his on fumes, as, as we would say. And he got caught up with refugees and he just developed this burst of energy and turned with the refugees. Got recaptured. A week later, he's on a he wasn't killed. Amazingly, sent back to the camp. The book, of course, describes what happened on the second death march. He really was out of gas and he went to the side of the road and and in these death marches if you went to the side of the road they shot you and sometimes they asked you if, if you would were willing to get up and my father actually managed to get up again with a burst of energy no one was looking and he bolted into bushes and trees i don't know where it came from and in fact part of the theme of the book is not just about my father about but about me and discovering things about myself I hadn't known. And a question I asked throughout is, could I have had the guts and the will and the capability to to pull off what he pulled off? And I, of course, don't really know the answer. You actually say that you, you heard his stories often, but it was an image you'd never seen before when you found that picture of him. That's correct. My my father turned out to be, he was a good-looking guy, or as I would tell people, he was a good-looking guy, just ask him. He was actually a model in his hometown before he was transported to concentration camp. He, one of his photos, a headshot photo of his, happened to be plastered around town. And, and he, after the war, he spent 18 months in a hospital. And while in the hospital recovering, he, asked, he had eight brothers and sisters. Four were killed outright, four survived. Oh. He asked one of his surviving brothers to send him a couple of copies of that picture. And then once he was released from the hospital, he was he his train stopped off in the town where he'd been hidden. And he went and he met with the people who had hidden him. Of course, now he's not an 80, 75 or 80 pounder, but he's a, a, a fully developed young man. He gave him a copy of that photo. And 20 years later, they gave the copy of that photo to a historian who was doing research on the concentration camp. And then so the concentration camp now had it. It's a most amazing story. It, it, that was why you felt you had to. You had to write the book. Y- yes, yes, but. Uh, I mean, I've known the story my whole life, but my father went back and visited the camp at a point and never told me. And when I discovered that he'd done that, it generated this drive in me to, to understand why he hadn't done that. And when I started researching that and discovered not only a lot more about myself than I ever knew, but then you sort of put that together with what is happening in the world, with the divisiveness that we have in the world today, which we haven't had in in a long time. Well, what happened to my father is what happens when the world becomes divisive. 
what happened to the Jews, what happened in other genocides in the world. And I just felt I had a story to tell. I felt I had to remind people of what it could come to at its extreme. And, and plus, wrapped around an interesting story, I thought. So I did. Do you have any siblings? Yes, I do. I have a brother four years younger. How has this affected both of you, knowing that your own father went through these horrors? You know, that, that's a great question. So uh, you probably know this, but people who's, who are the children of concentration camp survivors are called the next generation, the second generation. And many of us are considered, you know, we're, we've been heavily, heavily impacted by our parents' experience. My brother and I never felt that way. Never. You know, our dad was this interesting, engaging, good-looking, athletic, funny guy who had the occasional nightmare, but that was it. So we knew the story our whole lives, but we never felt really impacted by it. As I started researching the book, I began to recognize all the impacts it really did have on me. My brother, uh, I love him dearly, but he will today tell you he still doesn't quite feel that impacted by the fact that his father had done what I described, you know, a year in the camps and two escapes. We get along great, but he'll tell you that his impact was less than mine. I know the book has just come out, but how, do you think this will ever be made into a film? I mean, it's just such a great story. It's got it's got film written all over it. I, I believe the answer is yes. I mean, uh, for for just the reason you said, I mean, it is it is a it is a great story. It's you know the classic Hollywood three parts. Uh, you know, he's he goes to the camps, he gets to a near death experience, and then he then he's escapes and rescued and survives. I think the answer is will be a yes. Right. Thank it you. is the most amazing story and a most moving story. And I gather that it's published by Frontline Books on the 8th of October this year. That, that's correct. It came out in, in the UK and therefore in Europe on the 8th of October. It doesn't come out in the United States in hard copy until early 2019, January 2019. There's a U.S. distributor who, who of course, is, is you know where I live. I mean, so where all my friends are, if they're not going to do it through airmail, are, are waiting for it. But yes, it's already available in Europe. Jack Hirsch, thank you very much indeed. It's one of the most moving stories of the of that awful time that I've yet heard, and I look forward to reading the book completely and utterly. And I wish you every success with it. Thank you Thank very you, and much. I appreciate you saying that. Nice talking to you. If you would like any more information about any of the things you've heard on today's program or any of the guests that have appeared here, then please go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Now, we all know that at the heart of some synagogues can be the most amazing displays in the form of stained glass windows. Some of the finest examples of this were created by David Hillman. And Spyro Ark have organised an event in conjunction with the Central London Synagogue, which is going to take place on the 4th of November. And our next guest will be at the centre of that event. Professor David Newman is the great-nephew of Rabbi David Hillman and joins us now in the studio. Welcome. Tell us a little, because this, I gather, is a well-kept secret. What do these stained glass windows that you have seen in the central London synagogue, what do they depict? Actually, there are over 200 David Hillman windows in about seven or eight synagogues throughout London, and they're one of the best hidden art treasures that exist in London. The central synagogue has one of his finest collections, they were made in the 1950s when the Central Synagogue was rebuilt 
after it had been destroyed during World War II. And have you visited them all, David? I, on my sabbatical back here in London, I'm on sabbatical from my Ben Gurion University in Israel, I've actually visited all of the windows in all of the shawls that exist in London. And when I'm here on a Shabbat morning, I, I pray, I daven at the St. John's Wood Synagogue, which has no fewer than 120 of his windows. That's amazing. It is amazing. For an Israeli, as you can imagine, a, a long United Synagogue service is rather long, so I can spend time patrolling and looking and examining the windows every week. And what's even more amazing is he did them almost all by himself with one worker. In the, he, he, his work started in the late 1920s and went on virtually through till his death in the early 1970s. And some of the very latest windows were completed after his death by his niece, Louise Hillman, who's still alive here in London. I'm assuming his workshops were in, in London? I remember as a small boy that, you know, we used to have to do that terrible thing, visit the aunts and uncles on a Sunday afternoon for tea. And maybe twice a year we went to the Hillmans. His wife, Annie Hillman, was actually my great aunt. He used to take us up to his studio at the top of his house in Priory Road. And that's where all the windows were made. Now, one of the things that you haven't actually told me is what they actually depict. Or are they all so varied that it's hard to distinguish them? They depict the whole Jewish life cycle. He has about 15 or 18 very well-known windows, which wherever you go, you can see the same or the similar window as it developed over time. But in many synagogues, of course, he had to develop new topics. He had for Pesach, for Sukkot, for Rosh Hashanah, for Yom Kippur, and all of the others. And then in the synagogues where he had to do more windows, he developed all sorts of Jewish themes. It may sound a bit strange, but these are very, very Jewish windows. They're very different from the stained glass windows that were in the cathedral synagogues beforehand, which may have had Jewish topics, but were very church-like. These were very Jewish windows with a lot of Jewish texts because he was a well-educated person. He was a rabbi as well. You mentioned Central Synagogue and St. John's Wood. What other synagogues have got his windows? There are a number of synagogues which have them in the second generation. They were made for synagogues which then closed down and were transferred. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, the Bayswater windows are now in Boreham Wood. The Cricklewood windows are now in Kenton. And the, and the new cross windows are in Woodside Park. But there are also a few windows in Hampstead. Some of the earliest are in Egerton Road, which is now the Bob of Hasidim, but because of heritage laws, they weren't allowed to touch them or change them. They're not into stained glass. And you can see them at a number of other synagogues as well. I've probably left something off the mm. list. But seven or eight of the major synagogues and a few outside London. There are two synagogues in Jerusalem with his windows. There's one in Dublin. Leeds has two of his windows. But the main group are here in London. And I'm assuming that these are all United Synagogues? The ones in London are all United Synagogues. There is one interesting window, which no one's sure how it got there. When the windows were transferred from Bayswater to Boreham Wood, one went for a little walk, and a beautiful Purim window is to be found in the Stained Glass Museum exhibition in Ely Cathedral. Good heavens. That's a coup, isn't it? Have they all survived, and what happened to them during the war? Well, most of his windows were before and after the war. The central synagogue windows were after the war, but they weren't in that shawl before the war. It's a very good question, which I've not thought about. I don't think any of his windows were actually destroyed during the war. 
Some of them aren't in the greatest of condition now. And I know there are a number of shawls that would like to do a major refurbishment work on them, but it is such an expensive job. And there are so many other things you have to raise money for in the community that I don't think that's uh, on the agenda right now. Because they are quite vulnerable, aren't they? They're, they're vulnerable, they're valuable. Even just to light them up, which would make it look so majest- majestic on a night like Col Nidre, is also a very expensive thing. Tell us a little bit more about the event. It's not the first time I've spoken about the Hillman windows. I spoke about it in Jerusalem in one of his shuls last December during Hanukkah, and I'll probably be giving another talk about it at Limud this year. What is very interesting, and uh, I should mention, is that Hillman came from an extremely interesting family. His father was Diane Hillman, the head of the Beth Din, and his sister was the wife of Chief Rabbi Herzog. So Isaac Herzog, or, or the President Herzog, was his nephew. Isaac Herzog, who was here this week, was his great-nephew, just as I am, from a different side of the family. And although we have common interest in Israeli politics and geopolitics, we usually end up discussing the Hillman windows when we meet. I can imagine that must be a great subject, which you both enjoy talking about. But I'm afraid that's where we're going to have to leave it. Thank you very much for coming into the studio today. That was Professor David Newman of the Ben-Gurion University of the Negev. And if you're interested in going to the event that we've been talking about, it's on Sunday the 4th of November at 4pm in the Central Synagogue and the tickets are £10 each. We'll put more information about this on our website, jewishviews.co.uk. You're listening to Jewish Views in association with the Jewish News. Now, when you think of someone who's but mitzvah age... You'd be forgiven for thinking they must be around 12 years old? Well, that's not the case for our next guest, Beryl Schisler, recently celebrated her bat mitzvah at the age of 92. There's a reason behind why she had to wait so long, as Phil Dave has been finding out. He's been speaking to both Beryl and her teacher, Rachel Krieger. Phil started by asking Beryl how she feels now that she's finally had her bat mitzvah. Very good indeed. Now, I think we should tell people for listening, in case they don't quite realise, you weren't able to celebrate your bat mitzvah at the age of 12, like most bat mitzvah pupils. Why was that? Because the war was on and we were evacuated and there was no Yiddishkeit in the area. And even though after the first year... The school, which was the City of London, evacuated to Keithley, which was about 10 miles north of Bradford and Leeds. But it turned out there were Jewish teachers, but we were not allowed to be taken to Bradford or Leeds because... At that time, it became a danger zone. So did you ever get to thinking then that your bat mitzvah would just never happen? Yes. Well, you see, that was why, I mean, I realised that I would have to wait until after the war and all that. 
and I only got round to it at 92. <laughs> you, have to, you have to give these things time, don't you, you see? <laughs> don't rush it. Well, Rachel, let's bring you in at this stage because obviously I think a lot of people do think that Bat Mitzvah obviously takes place around the age of 12. They don't normally associate it 80 years after that. Is that quite common practice for people to have Bar Bat Mitzvahs later in life? It's not really a common practice for bat mitzvahs because they weren't really a big celebratory thing at that time. Certainly in British history, it wasn't a very common thing for women to have a bat mitzvah at the age of 12. That's very modern. But you would have kind of a family meal. It would be something small and intimate. Uh, You certainly wouldn't be changing the carpet in the ivy and having Beyonce shipped in for your bat mitzvah celebrations in those days. I don't even know if the ivy existed then. Um, I don't think Beyonce did either to be fair (laughs) Beyonce's grandma but a second bar mitzvah has been a thing for a long time not just for people who didn't celebrate it when they were young but because there's a custom of having it at an older age I can't remember the age it is normally the early 80s it's normally 83 yeah I think it's at 83, so men have a second bar mitzvah. I can't remember why. That'll be something fun for your listeners to look up if they want. I'm getting hand signals from the side here that you can have three bar mitzvahs, but let's not go into the patriarchy now. But (laughs) no, it's not a common thing. But funny enough, in our community, we have had a few people who've celebrated an older age bar mitzvah, usually inspired by something like their granddaughter having a bar mitzvah and they want to go through that process themselves. They've never had the opportunity. Beryl, I think, is the senior but mitzvahette out of our community. Beryl, tell us a little bit about what you had to do to prepare for it. And and were you, I suppose, were you better prepared knowing, having lived a life of Judaism, what's expected of bat mitzvah students? So in other words, were you better prepared before you began preparing? Well, I think I was. Otherwise... I might not have gone through with it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's a compliment or an so, insult yeah. there. But <laughs> <laughs> what did you have to do, though, to prepare? Well, I had to know what I was going to read. And what did you read? The speech that we'd made up together for the time I'd spent after the war. Beryl had a really clear idea of what she wanted to talk about, which is her experiences growing up, particularly during and after the war, and how she stayed connected to Jewish culture against really a lot of difficult, uh, the backdrop of a, a lot of difficult situations. So she had quite a clear idea. So what we worked on is is linking it to that week's Torah portion a little bit and finding a way of expressing the story clearly so that everyone would be able to follow it in a straightforward fashion. And it's a really impressive tale of somebody who might not have had a huge amount of Jewish education, but felt so connected to the community that she kept finding ways of being involved or making it part of her her life. And Beryl, can you tell us a little bit about the actual service itself? When you delivered your speech, what was it like? How did it feel? It felt that it was very quickly (laughs) (laughs) fortunately. Were you nervous? Somewhat, but I decided that that was what I wanted to have and my health and strength gave me the chance to have it. Now, everybody knows that the most important process of any bar or bat mitzvah 
is how one celebrates it. I know that's not the case to anyone religious listening, I'm just saying. <laughs> how did you celebrate? I gave the speech to roughly the community. Yeah, your friends and your family, friendly. people at the community. It was a packed, yes. it was a packed hall, I would say. Yes. And what we did was I had a reception lunch for the roughly the whole community that turned up on the day. My goodness me, lunch was on you. It was fantastic. And there was plenty of food, which is an excellent thing to point out. No matter how many people came, there was certainly enough food. And also, Jeffrey did a song for you, Rabbi Schisler. He wrote a song, which we all got to join in with a chorus of. That was really special. Yes. Rabbi Schisler was my stepson. He was the younger one. He was about 14, maybe 15 when I married my late husband. And then there was two more children that were older. So, and of course, I came in to the call-up age, which for my late father was volunteered for the First World War from Australia in the Australian troops. And he trained for a commission which he didn't take up. But with the Second World War, he decided to take up his commission. So he went through quite a lot of the Second World War and got a decoration for putting out fires from incendiary bombs that was dropped close to the ammunition that Goodness. they got in France. Mm. So clearly family has got a lot of history when it comes to the war. Your family mm. has got a lot of history when it comes to the war. What would you say, though, that you feel now that you have achieved your bat mitzvah, do you feel any different for it? No, just that I've got the feeling of the success of having done it and... That has made quite a little bit of difference. For instance, when I went to Jewish care today, they went all over it again. <laughs> <laughs> Just finally, I suppose, I have to ask Rachel, was Beryl a model student? She was an excellent student. What we did was we sat and had conversations and I recorded them rather than normally with butt mitzvah girls, I get them to do loads of notes and then write out a big Google Doc. And I did feel that might be an excessive request for somebody who was 92. <laughs> so we did everything kind of verbally and I recorded them. So I've got wonderful recordings now of Beryl telling her full history as a young child evacuated to Ashstead and then to Keithley and the different things that happened with her Jewish background and I've been able to pass that on to her family now which they'll be able to have and free up some memory on my phone. How am I? <laughs> it's always the important things with you isn't it? Amazing. No it was really fascinating because I've known Beryl for many years. I'm a family friend, we're in the same community. Verna is one of my very close friends. I've known her grandchildren since they were little tiny boys and 
I never would have known any of this part of her history if we hadn't had this opportunity. You don't always think to ask people, you know, even if you see them quite regularly, well, what happened to you in the war? That's not really something necessarily our generation think about. And it did make me think how I wish I'd had more time with my grandparents to ask those sort of questions. Mm. As I say, all of us, Beryl, thank you very much indeed for telling us your story. And just finally to you, if anyone's listening who thinks that they are, shall we put it delicately, maybe too mature to have a bar or bat mitzvah, what would you say to them? I would say if it's something they feel they really want, it's as well to have one. But I don't think people of my age, unless they wanted to do it, would have bothered, you know, to have a bat mitzvah. Well, I get the impression that your friends and family are very pleased that you did bother. So muzzle tov to you for your success in that. And also, I believe, just as a quick note, that we have to say muzzle tov to you, because am I right in thinking there's been a recent engagement in your family? Yes. Well, muzzle tov for <laughs> yes. that as well. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much for speaking to us on The Jewish Views, both you and Rachel. It's time now for our Rabbinic Thought of the Week. And this week it comes from Rabbi Aaron Goldstein from Northwood and Pinner Liberal Synagogue. I clearly recall a tremendous session for our Liberal Judaism Rabbinic Conference, led by Graham Carpenter, then LJY Netzer, movement worker, illustrating his work with teenagers en route to universities or away from home for the first time. He challenged us to think what would be the Jewish objects that we would take with us. I recall clearly what I had with me at Aston University, as well as my kippah and talit, sidor and chumash, were my Shabbat candlesticks. I'd recently returned from Shnat a year of service in Israel, and also had a photo album holding my Israel highlights. I was the only out Jew at Aston. There were only a handful of us in total. The first Friday night of my second year remains a defining moment in my life. I went into the shared kitchen to get a slice of white bread and a nip of wine and went back to my room. I was just about to light the candles when there was a knock on the door in the equivalent of Huey, Dewey and Louie, my mates, were lined up and said, we just want to know what you do. We returned together to the kitchen. I made kiddush and we ate together as we would then do every Friday night at uni. I recalled Ahad Ha'am quoted as saying, more than Jews kept Shabbat, Shabbat has kept the Jews. Shabbat certainly reinforced my Judaism and the fact that the majority of Brits do not know Jews or what we do. There are those in the UK who are anti-Semites. The same people are probably misogynists and anti-Muslim and all other people who do not look or sound like them. And yet I firmly believe that the majority of people who might agree with a statement we would consider anti-Semitic are merely ignorant. My first rabbinic role was as Liberal Judaism's outreach director. In creating new communities around the country, I would drop in at a pub in the evening and inevitably be surrounded by locals asking me questions about being Jewish. As they said, they had never knowingly met a Jew. We want our Jewish students to feel safe and we must empower them to identify openly as Jews on campus, as the vast majority of students will be delighted to learn more about Judaism and perhaps share a ritualised weekly meal. Thank you to Rabbi Aaron Goldstein from the Northwood and Pinner Liberal Synagogue for our thought for the week. 
And that's it for this edition of The Jewish Views. Thank you to our guests, Rachel Fink, Jack Hirsch, Professor David Newman, and Beryl Schisler and Rachel Krieger. Thank you to our producer, Sue Greenberg, and indeed to you at home for listening. You can always listen to this episode or any previous episode of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk. Please remember to subscribe to us in your podcast application. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News. From me, Tony Honigberg. Me, Diana Toman. And me, Clive Roslin. Please do join us again next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.